Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Lucy Hounsom. And I'm Megan Lee. Vampires, werewolves, mermen, zombies. These are all classic monsters who come with their own blueprint. You can mess around with tropes and reinventions, but we all recognise the nature of the monster. But what about when the monster is an ordinary person? What blueprint do you follow then? How are monstrous people different from monstrous monsters? Joining us tonight is Katrina Ward, the first woman to win the August Ehrlich Award for Best Horror Novel twice, once for Royal Blood and again for Little Eve. Thank you for joining us, Kat. Can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and your books, please? Yes, and um, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight to be here, as always. Um, yes, on my first my first novel, my debut was Raw Blood, which is about a um, a family who live on a house on Dartmoor, um, who are haunted through the generations by a white figure who comes and takes them, and uh, and they essentially frightens them to death if they marry or have children. So by necessity, the family dwindles and dwindles and dwindles. Um, until it's just a father and a daughter left alone in the early days of the 20th century at the eponymous raw blood. And um, it, the narrative unfurls of whether she escapes the curse or, 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 or doesn't. Um, and uh, it's told in lots and lots of intersecting uh, first-person narratives. Um, and it was quite a sort of puzzle piece to put together. And then the second one was Little Eve, which is essentially about a troubled young woman who may or may not have killed her entire family in a snake-worshipping cult on New Year's Day 1921 in a stone circle on a Scottish island. Um, so they're all comedies, as you can tell. Um, but and then I recently, um, I recently, uh, just just uh, a couple of couple of weeks ago, released my third one, which is the Last House on Needless Street, which is about uh, a very strange and lonely man called Ted Bannerman who lives um, in the Last House on Needless Street, just before the great wild, uh, roiling forests of the Pacific Northwest um, in Washington State in in, in the United States. Um, and he lives with uh, his daughter, Lauren, and a very disapproving cat called Olivia. And now children have been going missing in this area um, uh, for, for many years, just disappearances, no bodies ever found. And um, a, a, a young woman named Dee moves into the va vacant house uh, next door, the second to last house on Needless Street, I guess, um, because she is convinced that Ted has something to do with her own sister's disappearance at, um, nearby some years ago. Um, so she starts surveillance on him to, to figure out whether or not he, he could be involved in this. And um, then when Ted's own daughter, Lauren, goes missing, um, suspicion turns to terror and events unfold. I mean, when we were thinking about questions to put to you, based on The Last House on Needless Street, which both Megan and I have read and which we both loved. It was a question of how do we talk about it and yet not give away all of the twists and turns, and also for those who haven't read Raw Blood and Little Eve as well. So the one thing I thought that kind of kept all of your novels together is the fact that you take ordinary people and make them monstrous. 
Um, so when we talk about making ordinary people monstrous, I just wondered if you could talk us through it a little bit. What what will you mean about that and how you do it? I, I suppose I I, mu- I must have a real a, a real sort of um, feeling for the monster, I suppose, because I don't. I don't. You don't set out to write a monster, do you? You set out to write um, a story about something, you know, something that you can empathise with, with you know, complex emotional um, trajectories. And there are monsters. There are people who, with whom I suppose you cannot feel sympathy. But I, I wouldn't normally pick those stories to tell, if you will. I think that suffering and uh, and being perhaps in the hands of a monster. Often creates a monster, as we as we well know. You know these things get passed, passed down, and 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 monsters create monsters. I think in terms of, um, certainly the monster, the monster of raw blood, and um, the monster of well, uh, well, I, I leave is a little bit different because there is a sort of patriarchal monster who I suppose you could you could say is created by. Um, is is created by, by the uh, you know by the culture by the culture and uh, by you know by by the mores of it, of that time and of by society, but he's not he's he's um that's the, the sort of the the cult leader uncle. You're not asked to sympathise with him um, at all. I think I think the, the scariest line gets crossed um, for the reader and perhaps for the writer as well when you when you can see how someone came to be <laughs> a monster or when you when when you can when you can understand that looking at it from 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 it's never just a journey from a to z it's it's a via b c d d d or just tiny incremental steps of things that wear away at your humanity and and your resolve and it, it's a pro- process of years and years i always i suppose rather frighteningly just think it it would be so it it'd be so easy for those things to happen to you without almost without your volition or knowledge were you in the right situation um we talk about the banality of evil you know it's primo levi isn't it and that is the greatest fear for me i think is 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 that the unwitting collusion in monstrosity um I think you know that it was a, that that phrase was originally applied to Nazism and um, the conduct of the concentration camps. So, and that's that's a perfect example of of when of people being huge amounts of people behaving in ways that you would just assure yourself you would never do. Um, the Milgram experiment is something I think about a lot as well, you know. And of, I, of course, one 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 sticks one's hand up straight in the air and says, "Well, of course, that would never happen to me. I would just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't go along with it." May we never be in a position to be forced to know, but um, the the begetting of monsters is often right um, with them beginning as the victim, not the. Or the survivor, not the perpetrator, and that I think is 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 probably one of the most frightening truths that that life holds. You know, I think you're right. And for me, the the idea of turning something sort of more normal, banal, into something really terrifying that is more terrifying to me because I can believe it. It's like you know. I don't believe vampires are real. I don't think ghosts are real. I don't think, you know, whatever. But the idea that some of these really creepy, terrifying, evil people that 
you know, I've got to say that you like to create. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> to give that's, me nightmares. Thanks, that's, Kat. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's just so much more terrifying because I can – I can see it happening, and although I I would definitely hope that I would never get there, mm, mm. Uh, I I can see that in the world around me, and that is terrifying. You see it in yeah, and and um, certainly I don't know in 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 contemporary politics. Well, there's a lot of it in politics in general, but you know you you see you see like like the it's a sort of um, you know re, reinstatement of like. Of, of racism in in the, in in US in sort of US parlance, which is kind of terrifying because I think what, what, what we you know well, hope hoped dearly that perhaps we'd kind of we were like becoming a society that was moving beyond at least beyond beyond a position where you could openly state such things and 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 be you know commended by the president you know um, so. I, it's 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 a very real and present thing, and um, and I think the whole point about a monster is they don't they don't think they're a monster, do they? Absolutely not. <laughs> well, you well yeah, and that so it's monster becomes a matter of perception. I suppose I mean definitely you know, not 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 in the most not in the most obvious ways, but their their perception of themselves is not is not that they're a monster. I think so, I mean you, the exception to that is like um, psychopaths and. Uh, you know, people who people who, who very much um, give in to uh, their own uh, their own kind of predilections at the, at the expense of the pain of others. I think that's a slight slightly different thing. But I don't, and and maybe there's a kind of joy in being a monster. There, there's a kind of sense of being above the above the natural order of things. I mean, Needless Street is very. It's, uh, it's very. I'm I'm fa- I'm completely obsessed with serial killers. I'm sure, as it's a com- it's a common obsession. And I was talking about about this to my psychotherapist friend and asking this question of why do we, wh- why do we take such an interest in it? Why is it that we, um, we, we have such a fascination with people who do s- such terrible things? And she said something very interesting, which I'd never heard anyone say before, which is um, that it's, <laughs> there's a kind of, um, um, you know, in terms of an e- evolutionary response, you can only do three things when you encounter something that's very dangerous to you. One is you can run away, um, and the other is you can fight it, and then the third is you can try and make friends with it and collaborate with it. So there's a kind of perhaps a sort of a, a longing to understand, which is part of like part of a defense mechanism in a way that which which makes huge amounts of sense to me as as a as a, as a principle. I think that there's almost a dreamlike or nightmare-like function in thinking about these things where you. Uh, I keep saying you. What I mean is me. Um, I, um, in the most terrible times in my life, I've gravitated much more towards these sort of things. There's a sort of um, like um, not being like uh, not being able to sleep and having it's not the, like the worst personal times in my life. I've definitely that that sort of obsession has spiked. And I think there could be all sorts of reasons for that, but I think also it's it it's almost a sort of form of inoculation. Uh, I had this phase where I couldn't get to sleep unless I was listening, listening to listening to people confessing to murder, um, uh, and uh, fortunately or unfortunately, there are plenty of these things on the internet to listen to, and I, it was just I. 
absolutely horrible. And I th- I just remember thinking, how can I, how can I be the kind of person that does this? And and also, why does it help? Like, and I, I think it's because it's it is a sort of it's a sort of vaccination against against the most horrible thing that can happen to you. Like, if you explore those feelings enough, then you're, it's a, it's maybe even a form of preparation, you know, um, for being exposed to to things which really really frighten you. Um, it's 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 very interesting. I certainly don't have all the answers, but I remember when I, I almost everyone I mentioned this to this sort of like um, seeking out horrible things at a time of horror in one's own life, a different kind of horror, but still ho- horror nonetheless. It, it is it's 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 kind of a way of. Um, of not negating, but of, of of giving yourself more armor against the horror in a way. It's a very strange mechanism. I can't complain to, com- I can't pretend to completely understand it. But um, do, I, do any of you have that? I, you're all going to say no, aren't you? And you're- <laughs> <laughs> no, I I have to say that I actually do that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I I love um as you do serial killer stories, and I love reading about them, and and I find it fascinating. But one thing I've found for me is that when things get really bad, mm. I really love dark, like, police procedurals. Right, right. But, but I've always thought that I liked them because in the end they always get the baddie and the baddie gets the comeuppance. Yeah. And I think there's something in that that I like as well because, yes, you know, it's horrible and, and there's all these terrible things that will happen. But then in the end you always know it's going to you know, I think that's I think that's really interesting, and that's that's really that's a, that's a slightly different function of of it. But that's why we write these things, isn't it? It's because you you're bringing sense and rationality into a world, imposing sense and rationality and plot and rules on a world which actually doesn't contain these things at all. It's 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 like that that kind of fiction is exactly yeah. I find it very reassuring. Ghost stories and police procedurals, or there's a logic to them which the real world just lacks, sadly. Well, I never knew that Megan liked serial killer stories, and I must admit this is now a, a new area that we can discuss and disagree. <laughs> but I'm I'm very similar. I, I read a lot of um, serial killer mm. biographies, and mm. I think there are two elements to it. The reassuring element is that they are caught, and they almost they're like a butterfly in a jar. You can look at them mm. and go, okay, what made you do what you did? How did you do it? And how can we spot that monstrosity in other people and stop them in in advance? And for me, it's not about reading the gory details of how Mm. Myra Hindley killed all these kids and, you know, buried them and whatever. That's not about it. It's about looking at it and going, what happened? How are you like you are? And how can we spot this in future and save more children and at the same time grieve for those that have have gone? Um, So I think there is that element to it. But when it comes down to actual fiction and what Megan was saying about kind of, you know, wrapping it all up and bringing order back to it as well, I think there's one thing compared to serial killers and that kind of monster to werewolves as just a perfect example, or, you know, zombies. There is a definite weakness. If you're fighting werewolves, if you're fighting zombies, there are rules and you know what the weakness is going to be. And it's also something that's non-human. So, um, I always think of Terry Pratchett's Fifth Elephant, where Vimes kills the werewolf by throwing a stick of dynamite that the werewolf's dog side thinks is a stick, and it jumps up and catches it, and its head blows up. Um, but when it comes to serial killers, like you said, they have their own perception about why they're doing something for the good. They They see themselves as good characters, or justified at least. And in fiction, there's this strong fear as the victim of, 
if I can just figure out why they think they're good, if I can just switch their perception, yeah. maybe I can save myself. But you don't know yeah. what's driving them. And it's that quest to find out and see if you can save yourself by twisting it around. I think that's right. I think it's a sort of, I think it's a kind of practice escape room. But <clears throat> it does lead to this to this uh, kind of fetishizing of 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 the great of the cult of character of people like Ted Bundy and so on, you know, um, which is because because we are desperate to look at the butterfly in the jar, which is a brilliant image, by the way, um, and although maybe not a butterfly, maybe like a toad in a jar, you know. Um, we, we're desperate. To, we're desperate to look, and and what that what that can lead to, or at least it, it can sort of it can sort of bleed into, or just step over the line of the Venn diagram into, um, of kind of slight like slight slight kind of um, you know creating a mythos and and a cult of personality around them. I like I um, which is why I was I I love um, and again I think this is such a huge influence on. The way I the the mood I was in when I wrote Needless Street is have we read the five um, Haley Rubenhold. I haven't no. Well, all it I mean all it is <laughs> all it is is this magnificent work of scholarship which I've never seen the like of. But it, that's I mean that's what it is, which is basically just details the lives of the five canonical um, victims of Jack the Ripper. So it's not really about him at all or about their deaths. It talks about. She does this incredible, meticulous work about where they were born, and they had a, they had these very interesting things happen to them. And they there was a huge amount of a huge amount of stuff that happened to them before their deaths, which is what they're kind of you know um, remembered for in history. And also, one thing which blew my mind as well was this this you know there's this constant assumption that they were all sex workers or prostitutes. And she says, well, there's there's absolutely no evidence for that in three of the five cases. Um, you know, they had problems with alcohol and they were sleeping rough. There's no evidence at all that they were prostitutes. I find that so interesting. And I find that such an amazing thing to be able to tease out in a very, in a very rational and fact-based fashion, because it, it just, it, it really does show how our assumptions can overwhelm the, <clears throat> well, overwhelm the, you know, the, the facts of things. And the, the only reason that the, all it was suggested that they were all of the same profession was because the newspapers wanted it to be a titillating thing. So that was, that for me was extremely kind of influential because the last, like the last chapter, it's not, a, I mean, I hope you read it, but it's, I don't think it's, I don't think you can really say it's a spoiler. It's <laughs> history, but well, maybe, I don't know. But um, the last chapter is just a list of things that each of them had in their pockets the night they died. And I was in absolute floods of tears. It's so moving some of them useful things, some of them are personal possessions, some of them are broken, and you can see that they're really treasured because they were trying, you know, waiting for an opportunity when they could like mend mend the, the brooch that meant so much to them and you know, really treasured pictures. And that that for me was just like that this is that's a that's a, a something I thought, you know, uh, really important to to keep a, a delicate grip on, you know, is 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 not forget is is not place the monster in front of in front of those he he uh, he he affected or or inflicted violence on, you know, it's true, isn't it? How we we're, we're always so obsessed with the um the killer and the victims are always shoved to the side. Yes, it's it's and it's certainly if the victims, which they um in in many many cases are are like women and children, it leads to this sort of it does lead to this sort of slightly titillating prurient attitude, you know, um uh and 
a kind of sort of something reinforcing about really unhelpful norms, I think. But um, yeah, anyway, very, very interesting. And, and um, was it really made me think and it was and as I say like something that made that was in writing writing needlessly I just had very much in the forefront of my mind is not you know don't make, let the monster take center stage let's talk a little bit about um supernatural elements of horror because we've been talking a little bit about the ordinary and how the ordinary can become monstrous um but you know, I think most people um, that you you know you stop on the street, you ask them about horror. There'd definitely be some supernatural element mentioned there. You know um, things that happen in haunted houses, for example. Um, I mean, obviously you are uh, mistress of horror books, and I mean I read Raw Blood and thought it was one of the most chilling things I've ever read. <laughs> so <laughs> really beautifully researched as well. Um, but when we talk about the you know the extraordinary, um, the supernatural, why? Is it so easy for our imaginations to to you know why why is the supernatural fertile ground for breeding horror? I think the supernatural is that sort of um, we add we add elements which perhaps are articulations of what might be hiding in the night. So that we know we, uh, there's a fear. The fear in the dark is unlike any other fear. It's not like. Rational fear, fear, you know, or f- even fear of being victims of like the monsters we were just talking about. It's um, it's entirely amygdala based, and it's all about it's all about what about uh, touch and sensation and waiting for and waiting for something to materialize up out of the dark. I am, um, and I think some, sometimes it's impossible to believe that there, that there isn't something malign and much more powerful than us wait, waiting for us in the dark, and that's a huge, huge part of it. I think it can also—it's just, in a way, don't we need, don't we need a monster? <laughs> it just us psychologically, doesn't it make sense that there has to be something worse, darker, and more powerful than ourselves? That, that you know, in in a way, what a. What a kind, what a what a kind of strange world it would be if we were the apex of it, you know. Well, there's this idea that if something monstrous exists, then hopefully, conversely, something beautiful will exist. I mean, I know that doesn't yeah. ex- get explored in horror novels very much, but that's, it's just yeah. that desire for there to be something that's not just what you can see and hear, even if that something has to be monsters. I had a, yeah, I was talking about this with a friend the other day, and she was just like, "It's just so unfair that magic doesn't exist, and our whole brains can't encompass the uh, the deadly unfairness of it." You know, whereas I mean, of course, magic does exist in all sorts of small, in all sorts of ways that, um, you know, in lots of um, lots of forms, um, although not perhaps in in the way that one would recognise it from, um, you know, from from fairy tales or so on. But it's um, uh, yeah, it's I, I think it. It's it's a reaching out. You're right. It's it's a reaching out for the sublime, isn't it? It's a reaching out for for something infinite and beyond our beyond our our, our ken, as it were. Okay, I always sort of thought about it differently. So <laughs> I'm having to be different again. Um, <laughs> so for me, it's like, say, if I hear something terrifying in the night. It's almost like I would rather imagine a ghost or some terrifying creature than think it, you know, what if I should actually be afraid of my neighbor or someone I pass down the street? So to me, somehow it's less terrifying to think that there are actually 
actual, you know, monsters than thinking that, uh, no, the monsters are all around me and I sh- could be terrified of anyone, basically. Well, I think that's a really good point. Is Yeah, I think that's a really good point is you just – you if if you can if you can blame yeah if you can blame a vampire then you don't have to you don't have to think about what human human nature is sort of capable of i think you said rather articulately what i was trying to edge towards with that sort of idea that of us of us being all you know all there is the perpetrator and the savior and you know if we're just left with ourselves with no one you know no no demons to blame and no gods to um to appeal to then you know god we're fucked you know um but uh (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I personally that 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 is what I believe, and I think that the monsters become in that in 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 that circumstance they become a, a become a way of talking about the fears we have about exactly those things. So we, we talk about how afraid we are that our natures contain um, such uh, polarities of light and dark. You know, I think there's also going back to what I was saying previously about perception and animal natures okay, it might be a truly terrifying ghost or werewolf or vampire, whatever, climbing up your stairs, but there are rules to deal with it. And we've yeah. been taught from young age that what we read in stories, if you encounter it, is going to be true. And I know there's always there's always the bits in horror movies in particular where I look at the per- first person to die before they figure out what the ghost is and what the rules are, but you never really mm. associate with that person. You kind of put them to us, that wouldn't be me. You know, I'd be the one who would go and explore it and find out about the old curse and how to break it and things like that. And that is more, more appealing isn't quite the right word, but when you think of all the violence against women, particularly in the papers in the, in the last sort of few months, and that, there are no rules to that and there's no way to tell whether the person walking down the street is going to harm you, but you can tell whether the ghost is going to harm you and what you can do about it. It's it's just more reassuring in a weirdly terrifying way. Yes. It, yeah, I think, yeah, because it's not, yeah, it's 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 not in our natures. It's a monstrous other nature, you know. It's And, and maybe it's circling back to what we were saying about at the beginning about, you know, I mean, we, what we really fear maybe is, is what, or what I fear is that sort of that incremental steps, little series of steps that takes you towards becoming and being a monster, you know, which is, um, but I think, I mean, I think, I think the supernatural has such scope for, for, for describing things that are entirely rational and naturally based, you know, all of our feelings are, you know, it has got such, such a, 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 such a set and, um, epic language to talk about these, these these fears and also quite rightly as you're saying you know not just all fears but um but, but the you know the great sort of heights of feeling we're capable of the goodness and the kindness and them and the hope and all that um i think i feel like what well, raw blood was very supernatural and i i see it as its genesis this that experience i had when i was much um, younger at, at when we used to stay on Dartmoor, and I would wake up every <laughs> every every night with a hand in the small of my back pushing me out of bed, and um, it was just so it was so frightening, and it didn't have any visible human cause. It was just pure. Um, there was this pure sense of alien presence. I w- now since the since I've come to be be, be such good friends with Google, it's been. Uh, much more obvious what these things are. I think they're just hypnagogic hallucinations, which are hallucinations that happen when you are on the edge of sleep. Um, but at the time, I had no idea. 
how would I know, you know? Um, and at 13, you know, in a pre-internet age, um, that was definitely a, that's definitely a bloody ghost, isn't it? You know, that's, that's the reality your mind sits in. Um, but our minds are so finely tethered and, and delicate, delicately calibrated and are capable of so much, so much, um, reactions to stress and, uh, and, and, and fear and also and also do good things to hope and love and all that that I think sometimes the, these these you know I can see why people reached out for these for these ways of, of, of rationalizing the, the, the feelings and the fear and these these manifestations you know it's a bit just like creation myths I feel like you know we yeah. just tried to explain the world around us when we had no way of rationally explaining no it. Google. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, it's, but the thing is, it's actually, it actually does a very good job, I think. Um, you know, the idea, like, I, I always return to the vampires, a real soft spot for vampires. It's, it's, it does a really good job of, of, of articulating that fear of something more powerful than you, literally like sort of pseudo penetrating you in the night and draining your draining your life's blood you know it's that that's an that's an excellent like assemblage (laughs) of all sorts of things that we're actually really afraid of and there's a sort of and there's a there's a kind of a, a value in that as well um you were saying i i love the supernatural monsters more because they seem in a way less icky (laughs) <laughs> disgusting and morally morally corrupt you know there's something about there's something about um them being you know cre- about their, their their genesis and creation myth and all of that um and and that just it the being their nature really that makes it that makes them less culpable in a way and yet you insist on terrifying us with <laughs> <laughs> these people monsters <laughs> I know because I think you have to write what you're afraid of and I think that's that that's the thing is what all you're doing like when you're writing anything with hot with horror or I don't even know if horrors I don't know if I'd see it as even pure horror it's like it's just it's 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 the most extreme form of what I of what I worry about and fear and I think it's art you know what you're doing when you're writing that is you're asking reader to be like are you afraid of this too let's let's like let's walk through it together you know that's that's the pact the compact you make between reader and 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 author when you when you explore that those particular feelings um because they are extreme like what sort of what sort of crazy person wants to feel that what sort of crazy person goes and either a writes a book to to induce those feelings in people or, or goes and buys a book to induce the feelings in themselves. You know, it's it's a really it's a really um, it's a really strange thing. But I think it really does all come back to that that act of shared empathy, a sustained shared act of empathy between 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 um, author and writer through the book, through the pages of this of the story. So, speaking of people monsters. Yes. Um, we like people monsters. Uh, we'll, we also wouldn't be breaking the glass slipper if we didn't talk a little bit about gender and how gender weighs in on this discussion about horror and monstrosity. I mean, I think this is pretty topical at the moment. I mean, half an hour ago, there was another report on Channel 4 about women, um, you know, feeling very, very unsafe at night um, and not just in the 
refugees in the rural areas where um, in Skegness currently there's a petition to um, to turn back, turn the, the lights back on after midnight because at the moment there are fast swathes of that town that are in darkness. And then obviously it's really very uncomfortable. And, it, and, and this is very gendered because men don't have the same experience as women. Um, so thinking about... Um, the idea of this, of men's experiences with horror and women's experiences with horror um, and the type of monsters that, you know, we talk about serial killers, that <laughs> serial killers, what is the percentage of female serial killers as opposed to male serial killers? Not very high. Um, not very high. The um, it, it, it thing is, reporting differs, but certainly the ones that we know the ones that the, the ones that we the ones that we know of and the ones that um we have like all the accountable you know accounted for victims are you know mostly men preying opportunistically on vulnerable people um so there there we you know the statistics don't lie in a way and and there's obviously this is such a topical thing there are many you know, men who are in shock at the sheer quantities of women coming out saying, we really genuinely, this is part of our lives day in and day out. Um, how, so if, thinking about gender and thinking about, you know, monstrosity, is there a type of fear or a type of um, horror that transcends gender? Or is this subject still very much part of a, a, a gender debate? I can see exactly what you mean because the thing is, you, when you've just if you if you have um, if you have a culture which encourages one gender to act with impunity, uh, and you know one and also that that gender is you know, perhaps physically stronger, and you have back, backed up with all of this like many 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 um, centuries of of uh, of uh, you know of. Of, of bias and 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 uh, social inequality and all that um you you know you do you do wonder if you can ever equalize the monster really but i think and I, also there's a sort of sense i was thinking about this because I, I when it, i we i know we had you sent me your excellent sort of list of like little of like talking points and stuff and i thought isn't it isn't it some somehow inherent in a in a monster that is female that femaleness becomes part of the monstrosity so maybe that's true. Maybe that's true of two genders as well, where ma- maleness becomes part of the monstrosity as well. So it becomes a, a sort of like uber hyper aggressive, hyper sexualized uh, monstrosity. And but with women, it doesn't become a sort of. It, it, I think I think that the idea of a female monster is more terrifying in a way to some people than than a male monster for for just exactly the reasons that where women's qualities are not supposed to lend themselves to that um it's you know My- Myra Hindley's always been more shocking to people than than Ian Brady because she's a woman um and women are not supposed to want to do these things um it's i i mean i I, it's it's very difficult. It's 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 one of those things where I I have no idea or what I don't think any of us do. Um, what what qualities are endemic to a to a, someone's like psychology as a gender? Um, but you, what you, what you can what you can know is as you say, Lucy, how people act. That's what you can sort of measure in a sort of way. Um, and it seems to me that like being a female monster is is always. Um, the more dreadful monster because 
it shouldn't exist, even in the world of monsters. It's more monstrous <laughs> than um, and thinking of like um, you know anything from Myra Henley to like Medusa. These are aberrations in nature's law, you know. Um, so I'm always very interested in that. Always interested in like women that do women that 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 uh, who who encompass um, those monstrous qualities that are perhaps seen as more province of men. It, I think it's it, it reverberates so very shockingly with us. So we do, we don't we don't like it because we want because it's not it's not it's not culturally encouraged to to see those qualities as as being you know gender neutral. I don't I don't know the answer about I don't think anybody does. But you can see that sort of that sort of ripple effect of of horror that it causes in people, can't you? I think one of the reasons that Myra Hindley is usually brought up as a serial killer of, of a female serial killer mm. is because first of all she was a sexual predator and importantly she was sexual predator towards children um, yes. and I think it's that idea of it's not only a complete role reversal of you know motherhood of like preying on children but also because there was a sexual element to it and the men who tend to make the headlines and make the books that certainly are the ones I've got upstairs they do have a very sexual side to it but mm. if i said the name marianne cotton would you know who i meant no tell me marianne cotton is a i think it was the 18th century it's been a little while since i researched her but she was basically a woman who poisoned her way up in society and yes she, she started out kind of at the the lower level and she poisoned husbands. She poisoned husbands' children so that, you know, she could inherit and all this kind of thing. And she kept cashing in on the insurance. But there was there was more of a survival instinct to that. Whereas if you compare it with people like Ted Bundy, where it's a control thing, I think there's a very different motivation have been ascribed to women. And I think many female serial killers in the past who have been serial killers have done so to get out of terrible situations. Because Marianne Cotton wasn't the only one. There were quite a few back in, you know, that sort of era that were trying to fight their way out. There's, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm always a little wary about that, about about um, forgiving murder. You wouldn't think so to have read any of my books, but um, I, 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 there's certainly, it's always, always context is important, isn't it? Um, but I'm, uh, I mean, there are certainly, um, the methods seem to dif differ between, between the genders. Um, Sorry, I wasn't suggesting that I sympathised with them or I forgave them. But what <laughs> no. I was saying is it's a very it's a very different reason to get you out of a social situation compared to Ian Brady and all the others who did yes. it just because they could. There was no benefit to them. There was just pure pleasure. Whereas I don't necessarily think, apart from with Myra Hindley, who stands out because of this, I think generally if you look at some female serial killers, they've usually done it to better themselves or, you know, they've got a different motivation, which you can almost sympathise. Everyone wants to better themselves. We just don't tend to use poison as a way to do it. Whereas we all agree that, you know, sexual predation is just horrible and should never, ever be used. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, there's, there's, so there's. I think that's perhaps why <laughs> there's a kind of po poisoning is is definitely associated much more with female serial killers as well, isn't it? So, and perhaps that that's perhaps perhaps that's part of it. Is that there's it's if you're going to murder, there's a sort of more socially acceptable face of it, which is poisoning. Um, I'm thinking of uh, this is uh, the the one the more recent example of um. Uh, the nurse who poisoned, who uh, killed 
lots of people in a care home with insulin injections, Elizabeth Wetlaufer in, in um, Canada. Um, I think um, there is a kind of, um, maybe there's a different rationale that people reach for. I think her rationale was that she her, she she decided she was um, saving them. But if you watch her confession, there's a moment where you can see that she, despite her own um, rationale to herself and indeed to the to the interviewer, she's very much enjoying herself talking about it. She likes it, and she's enjoy she's she's gained the same sort of pleasure there's a lot of, there's a lot to, there's a lot to unpack isn't there um because i certainly as as you say like context context is is all important and certainly some people don't have the social standing as you know the 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 armory of social standing and um status and gender that perhaps that men would have and perhaps you know that perhaps it's, it's a resorting to 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 what you know whatever they can do in 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 a kind of um in a kind of self-defense, as you say, but um, I, it just it just does give you know uh, certainly sexual abuse by women is is, is something we just don't we, I, the, the, it does the mind the mind the mind boggles it, it well sexual abuse from anyone but particularly from women it just has this kind of huge totemic um, uh, iconoclastic thing about it which is you know. Uh, and um we do, we don't want to ascribe the same motives to men or to or to women and and indeed maybe they don't want to ascribe it to themselves you know i'm I, it's so interesting because it where is the intersect i don't i don't think we i don't think i can i'm just so interested in the intersection between all these things because it's i don't know that there are any right answers um but it's it's it is the most <sighs> It's it's the darkest and deepest pit of human nature that you can look into, isn't it? And we, we and you were doing it even now. I'm doing it now. Is I'm trying to puzzle my way through it. I'm trying to understand it. Um, and I think that's just such a it's such it's a strangely common human need, isn't it? Absolutely. And I don't think we ever can. That's why we keep reading this stuff. Yeah, as we say, like maybe you know, maybe maybe the hope is is that one day you could find a way around it, or or, or understand it, or prevent it. You know, um, that's certainly certainly the rationale um, that and and people do. You know, that, that for a lot of us research. I mean, do you remember the guy who um, I can't remember what he was called. Um, this is really useful for, of me. The man who um, found that um, psychopaths' brains were actually different to non-psychopaths' brains. Um, he wrote a book where he did a study on. On uh, he did a study where he bit, just basically he took like four thousand prisoners into into brain into a scanner into an MRI machine and mapped them, and um, and it was one of those like amazing moments for me reading it because I I just thought that you know that here is a piece of empirical evidence here is something we can actually get our hands on and say you know that this that this type of this this type of like um. Uh, brain activity, very low brain activity is psychopathic, basically, in certain areas. And then um, uh, they, they just don't, this, the, well, the assumption is, again, very difficult to know what a psychopath actually feels, but the assumption is they don't feel as much about, as they don't feel as much. And that's, that is part of the rationale for thrill-seeking. I just find it, I find it also fascinating and also rep- deeply, in the, in the most literal sense, repellent at the same time. It's one of those, yeah, strange human needs. Before we go too far away from gender, I sorry, just, yes, <laughs> I just wanted to talk a bit about it because I find it quite sad 
in a way, horror or like making monstrous characters, you know, out of human beings, in a way we're actually better about it with women than we are, you know, with the representation or whatever with women in in other areas in the sense that we don't kind of necessarily like make it I don't know, you know, in other areas or tropes and things, we're always kind of dismissing women. And this is kind of dismissing them, but in a kind of a positive way. But what I think is really horrendous is, you know, we can all sit here and say, oh, well, you know, it's it's even more horrific if a woman is a serial killer or a sexual predator. And uh, But that in itself just assumes that we kind of expect it from men and that's that is horrible the idea that we just i mean that's a whole society that basically thinks oh well you know boys will be boys <laughs> yeah i think that's a really that's exactly that's a really oppressive that's a really oppressive like patriarchal assumption which is very kind of sad, you know which is like incredibly sad as you say towards men like there's i think that i think that is what that kind of bifurcating gendered um approach does to both genders if you will does to, it's um it 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 forces men into this into this uh, kind of cliche of being violent, uh, like incre- like basically incredibly rapey. You know, all of their um, decisions based on like their strength and and um, and oppression. And actually, <laughs> I think what we obviously the, obviously the the best thing to do is is to is to personalize and humanize instead of instead of looking through these lenses. We've inherited the, them, though, and I think it's always good to interrogate, you know, how much of them is 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 happening in in the in whatever media we're consuming or what we're reading and stuff like that. But yeah, I've I know, I, and in in a, in a sense, don't women have as, have as much a right to be monstrous? Um, it's a it's it's a straight. It's certainly not one that I'll be marching for. But you know, it's like. Isn't it? Isn't it? Um, you know, isn't there a sort of equality, a sort of strange kind of twisted equality that should be operating here? So, yeah, I completely agree. You said earlier about not wanting to let the monster take central stage, and then we kind of touched on it again when we were talking about the nurse and how you said you saw her enjoying herself as she gave her confession. And I know from previous reading in Serial Killers that there was uh, Ted Bundy was always quite you know popular, and he liked to have a real good time while talking to people and kind of lead them down the wrong path. And there was one psychologist who was sort of like, that's enough, Ted, sit down and talk properly. And he was like, oh, okay, fair enough. But to everybody else, he played up and he was the actor. So given the fact that these monsters seem to love having the centre of attention, do you think that they really deserve our, our sympathies? Do you think they're just acting up for us and actually we should never sympathise with them? And if there are a line that if they cross that we just go totally, absolutely not, I have no sympathy and no understanding for you at all. I think there's a distinction between sympathy and empathy there. Um, I don't, I think you can understand in some cases anyway, how the monster came to be a monster and that can, that can induce a feeling of empathy in you because it might've been a terrible, you know, there's certainly terrible things that go into people's lives to create these monsters. Sympathy, I think is a different has a different quality to it, which is that you, 
you 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 sort of enter into their point of view. You see this in in, in lo- lots of examples. It's like if you sexually assault someone, or if you if you hurt an animal, you meet you're sort of lost. It too. Whereas you can, in, certainly in lots of types of, lots of genres, you can murder as many people as you like, and you're still, you know, you can pr- still probably get the reader's s- sympathy even, as well as their empathy. But um, I think there's a sort of sense of fair play almost, where um, if you're on a level playing field, uh, you can sort of be, or if you're punching, if you're punching upwards, like you were describing your 19th century poisoner, if there's a sense of of um, of the person who's committing those acts to be either doing them to someone on their level or or above their level, then the reader can sort of get on board with that. Um, I'm not at all saying that um, you know murder is is justifiable, but um, there's a, there's a sense in the world of the book that you 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 can you can go with them on that journey, even if you don't sympathise the whole time. You can still empathise. Um, I think I think there I think there is a line, yeah. Because there's nothing interesting in uh, taking in 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 the interpersonal dynamics of someone um, victimizing someone who is powerless. You know, I know how that sounds, but uh, it, it's not. It's not interesting. It's just pure power play and sadism, and those are not interesting feelings. Actually, we write books because we want to explore things that are you know the vast tapestry of feelings that that that, that make up our existence. And, and actually, most things that motiv- motivate, um, you know, abuse and 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 serial murder and things like that are actually they're not very complicated. They're you know aggra- feelings of grandeur and and sense of superiority and pure enjoyment. And actually, though, you know, who 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 can write a thesis? Who can write a sort of you know hundred thousand words on that? It's it, you just need in a way you just need more from the world from from the world of the book than that. So in in terms of fiction. I think you, I think you it's, it makes sense to steer away not only because of what pe- the reader can take and not only because of because of a sort of innate sense of uh, perhaps a sense of kind of like morality and what you as a writer can take but also because it's not it, it's not the best book that's that's not the best book that's that's that was that would be my best answer to that I think you're right that there's a, a big gap between fiction and reality and I mean, you've got Hannibal Lecter, who is the gentleman murderer, and you kind of feel, I don't know, do you feel sympathy for him? I certainly don't feel empathy because you don't really kind of go along with his ideas of you should kill someone just because they don't play well. But there is kind of, you know, there's almost a sense of fun about that. It's that idea of justice, isn't it? But just taken to the extreme. Well, well, he's sort of yes. Well, he he's he plays by the rules, doesn't he? Like the rules of equality. So there is a sort of elegant chess game that he plays with, you know, the the power structures around him. I mean, there's also the idea that if you leave him alone, he will kind of leave you alone. You know, it's that whole he'll just walk past you in the street, but if you attack him, he'll attack you back. And it's it's a really warped kind of way to look at it. But I was just thinking about your idea of empathy and sympathy, and I have to give a shout out to the podcast Murderers and Their Mothers with Donald McIntyre. It's very good, and it's very balanced. And basically, Donald gets on a series of psychologists, and they examine various different serial killers and look at their relationships with their mothers and how they were treated. And I remember reading, listening to it um, about Ian Brady, and saying how his mother showed favoritism to him over all of his other siblings by taking him to bed. 
And that, yeah. And, you know, they these serial killers did suffer some terrible things in their own families. But the one thing I found really interesting was that there's always a point in every single episode of Murderers and Their Mothers where Donald and the guests say, you know, there are lots of people who suffer really, really awful child abuse and don't go on yeah, who, to be serial killers. Yeah, yeah, and I think, I think that it, is yeah. the both the terrifying point of it all, where you kind of you look at it and you go, yeah, I have sympathy for them, but there are billions of people who suffer in uh, terrible fates and maybe similar fates, and they don't go on to do the same thing. So, you know, it is it is a line. And I think if you're going to put that in fiction, in reality, you would kind of go, yeah, it's really horrible, but does it really justify doing it? I think it's a lot easier when it's in fiction, when you can apply sort of rules to it, like the Hannibal Lecter rules, and, and make it a bit more sympathetic and, you know, jazz them up a bit almost, and not go down to the gritty realities that really make a real serial killer. It certainly makes better TV, for sure. And But there's such a danger in that, isn't there, because where you divorce the kind of reality. Because the thing is, the thing is about va- doing a vampire who's like a, sedu- who's like a seductive, psychopathic, charming vampire is vampires don't exist. Whereas if you do it with serial killers, there's a sort of conflation of the ideas that kind of... I- can can I don't know? Maybe is there a di- is there a problem with that? I don't I don't know. I just always, you know, you you know, you were quite rightly asking like how do you avo- how do you avoid kind of putting how do you avoid like kind of glorifying them a little bit? And um, I think the way you do that is you focus on 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 what they on what they did and the you know victims and survivors stories, not on 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 them. Um, and I think we I think we are moving away a little bit from the, from that sort of kind of slightly slightly kind of fascinated almost approving treatment um you know to to focus a little bit more on um on on because the thing is serial killers as a, as a general rule I, I, they're, they're not glamorous they're not very intelligent they're not very charming but bundy's the one that everyone talks about but that's because he it's like it was a baby because he was an exception generally the you know um just not 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 in, not interesting and 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 worth our, worth our focus really um so it's a kind of I, I think we're seeing a bit of a paradigm shift in the way we talk about them um i certainly think things like the f- the five is, is 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 a good example of that um but yeah i mean it's full of knotty problems i'm having to think quite fast during this interview because <laughs> it's like because there are so many sh- there are so many shades of gray to it and I'm and there's always a, a sense of kind of wondering if you are part if when I say you I mean I I am always wondering you know am I part of the problem I always try not to be I'm very, I try to be very aware of you know the possibility of of making the hor- horrible center stage as opposed to what the horrible does to people which is supposed to be the story you know well you would you mentioned earlier that there's you know, there's no way you can really, you know, empathise with or, or or forgive murder. But maybe I'm getting a little philosophical about it. But one of the reasons that I think that something like child abuse or, or you know sexual assault is more unforgivable in terms of things than than straight murder is because we already have forgiven murder and we've already normalised murder because of war. And, you know, especially in, um, like, fantasy and, and sci-fi fiction where you have this constant violence and, you know, the, the characters who are represented as morally good 
they're, they're constantly murdering people. And yes, it is in the name of war and all this, and, and we feel that that's justified. But at the end of the day, that's basically saying that there are plenty of good reasons to kill someone, but there's still we just don't have any of those that could excuse some of these other more out there crimes. But murdering? <sighs> Well, murder, yeah, murder's got a sort of—it's got a sort of function of the state, hasn't it? It's got a—it's got—it's got a kind of political. It's got—it's got a higher purpose in principle. You know, that—that's the idea behind it, isn't it? Is that murder functions as you know to pre- to preserve the integrity of like of, mm-hmm. of 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 the of the nation and of the state. Whereas you know, I don't. Yeah, no one's no one's uh, managed to make that argument for for child abuse. Um, and I think they find that very difficult. But yeah, you're right. We've we've institutionalized murder, and um, we and we've we kind of we we're kind of just okay with it, really, <laughs> in some circumstances in fiction, um, and and even in, in even in life. Yeah. Sometimes, Katrina, we ask our guests to do a pitch for their book, but I kind of feel like you did that all at the beginning, and I don't want to say anything else about the books, just in case we give away the twists. So. I would like to say to all of our listeners that pick up any of Kat's books. They are absolutely fantastic. I mean, even Lucy Hansom, our resident fantasy expert, does love a little bit of raw blood. So (laughs) I think it's good for everyone. Thank you so much for joining us, Kat. It's been really wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you so much for having me again. This is always the the most wonderful talk. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hansom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.